Today we're back in the book of Mark, one community for the community. We've been learning lessons of Jesus' life as he has been training us in discipleship because Jesus called out a group of disciples for himself because Jesus knows the end game. When Jesus came to this planet, and now that his ministry has been made public, he was about 30 years old when he went on the public stage to make his ministry known. And as I say the public stage, it's not like he came and did the big show. No, he did the quiet things and just ministered to people. But because he's God and revealing the Father, Jesus was often preaching the word, but also doing miracles um, that would validate that he was God. Well, in the process of that, the crowds have become huge. He's got these disciples that follow him, not only the 12, but there's multitudes that follow after him. Literally everywhere he's going, people are are following to see what he's going to do next. They want to hear his words. They want to see what the next miracle is going to look like. But Jesus has an end game in mind because he knows his mission. He came to pay the sin debt for mankind. He knows that at the end of the day, he's going to go to the cross, be crucified, and then be resurrected later. He already knows this. But his work was very specific. In order for the church to exist, and in order for us to be like we are today, he had to establish disciples and train people to do what he does. And so for three and a half years, it's actually less than three and a half years, but for about three and a half years, he trained 12 men to reproduce himself. So that when he ascends up into heaven... There are now a foundational group of men and women who are going to proclaim the gospel and multiply the church. So that now, here we are, 2,000 years later, churches all over the globe, and we participate in the same. There's a calling that goes into this for the individual believer, and that is as the church, as an individual part of the church, that, to make disciples. We have been instructed in Scripture to go make disciples and to teach the gospel message of Jesus Christ and help people then grow in their faith, to mature in the faith. That is individually the mission for every believer. It's the mission for our church. It's why we do what we do in ministry every week here, but also why we partner with other people all around the planet who are also making disciples where they are, and we join with them in their endeavor to help them uh, accomplish that mission and purpose. Now, if you think about this from what Jesus is doing, he's got a, a very defined end time when he's going to ascend up to heaven, and he's got a lot of work to do to get these guys up to speed. He needs to train them so that as a teacher, they hear him and watch him teaching the gospel proclaiming the kingdom, and they, they hear what that's about over and over again. They've listened to him teach like he did on the Sermon on the Mount, that he would say, well, you have heard that it's been said, but now I say unto you. And he comes along and he takes the law of Moses and brings it to light in a way that that's totally new for them. All they've ever heard, people have constantly been hearing this law of Moses, but it's always done in a rigid rules-following manner that was a dead religious feel but had no life to it. And Jesus comes and now says, now let me explain to you the life that God's designed behind that in the first place. And Jesus then teaches the gospel. And he performs miracles one after the other. And the disciples are watching that and like, how is that reproducible? And what is Jesus going to do in order to equip these men to be able to sustain that type of ministry or reproduce that kind of ministry? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. This is exactly what Jesus does, is he trains them in the rhythm of ministry. Now, 
I bet most of you in this room at some point on your job transitioned from the role that you were in to a different role. And when that happens, whether you change organizations or companies or you change positions in the company, there was a transitional thing that happened where you were to equip the person maybe coming in behind you so that you didn't leave this huge vacuum and a huge void. And when everything runs right in an organization, that, that's what that should look like. And we all have ex probably experienced those moments where something happens and somebody either just quits or an emergency takes place and now they're not there and it leaves this huge void and now we're everybody's scrambling trying to fill the gaps. Well, you think about what is Jesus doing. All the corporate designs for uh, transitions are all been ripped out of the Bible. Corporate discipleship is what I like to call it because you take the concept of equipping someone to do the role that you've been doing. You, what do you do? You teach them to do it. You show them how to do it. You allow them to do it with your supervision. And then you walk away and let them learn to do it with their, their gifts, talents, and abilities and apply that the way they would know how. That's exactly the way Jesus is going to do this with the disciples. It's the way it works in ministry. Ministry running correctly would mean that everyone is engaged in a ministry involved in serving God in some capacity. As a Christ follower, we've been called to serve. And it, it doesn't matter what that task looks like, because sometimes the tasks seem very small or trivial, but there's really none that are too small. Something has to happen to make every, every piece of ministry happen week to week. But if you think about, if you just stopped doing that ministry, whatever that is today, and there was no one to fill in that gap, well, it would create a, a hole here. And so there's a, this transition of always training someone to do what you do. I lived this personally when I first became a pastor in Florida, and I was a youth pastor, and I was serving alongside with a guy, and he was always training me, not realizing what was going to happen next in his life, but he was always teaching me something I needed to know. And all of a sudden, one day, he calls me and says, hey, I'm going to run by the hospital. I've got this terrible headache like I've never had in my life, and uh, I'm just going to go get this thing checked out. And a few hours later, he was dead. And now, all of a sudden, I was there alone as the only other pastor on, for that church. And so now, all of the things that he had transitioned and had prepared me for, I was in good shape. But all of a sudden, all those other things that I didn't know... Those left holes. And it's, it sent a message into my heart, and it's nothing against what he did. We just didn't have the time. I was only there with him six months before that happened. But it, it sent a loud message into my heart and soul, and that is, as a disciple maker, to reproduce your life so that someone coming behind you can do the exact same thing you do. And so it's why we do ministry the way we do here with discipleship and equipping the saints so that everyone is equipped. That's my, my goal in life, is that every one of you would feel totally equipped to do whatever it is that God would lead you to do. If it's to serve faithful in one community church and be here for the rest of your life, praise the Lord for that. Reproduce yourself again and again and again. It may be that God calls you out to a, another place and you're going to be a church planter and you're going to go pastor somewhere or you're going to be a missionary and go serve God in another part of this earth. That's wonderful. I pray for that to happen. But I also realize there's a responsibility to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that's what we do. And that's our desire. We derive this from Scripture, from the book of Mark, chapter 6. And I want to give you an example of it today. Here's the story. Mark 6, verse 7 is where we'll begin. And he called the twelve to himself and began 
to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And not put on two tunics, sorry. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, let me share with you briefly this morning some lessons about the rhythm of Jesus' ministry that he has been doing and now he's now instructing the disciples to do the same. And not only that, he's going to empower them to do it. And there's things we're going to learn from this because if I will follow the Jesus rhythm, I think I'll be in good shape in my Christian life. So here it is. The Jesus rhythm looks like this. Jesus is the one who sends out to teach. So the key piece here is Jesus is the sender. Okay? We are sent ones. And matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 10, this same story is being told again. And so I want to catch a couple of key words here. It says, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and disease, now the name of the twelve apostles are these. Now, whoa, in between verse 1 and verse 2 in Matthew chapter 10, you had a shift. The same twelve guys are being mentioned. Jesus called his disciples to himself, but in verse 2 it says, the names of the apostles are these. An apostle is a sent one. A disciple is a follower. It is someone who's a learner, as a student. He's now taking his students and learners and sending them to do the mission that he's now going to empower them, and he's been spending this time equipping them. Now, these guys are not all amped up for everything ready for ministry, so he's going to send them on a short mission journey. That is why they're not going to take a lot of stuff with them, because they're going to go and they're going to come back. But this is what ministry training looks like. He has been showing them and modeling for them. They've heard the message repeatedly taught in front of the multitudes. They've watched him do miraculous things and seen the result of those miraculous things. And now he's going to send them to do the exact same thing. And it's like, wow, okay, we've seen one. We've learned one. We have now see one. We're going to do one. And then we're going to talk about it. Okay, so this is the process. So now... When they are sent to go teach becomes the priority. And I want you to catch this in Scripture, that when they went out, he gave them power to do a lot of things, but the priority was teaching. And they were then sent two by two instead of one by one. It would seem like, well, you can cover more real estate if you just send them one by one. But he didn't do that. The reason for it is simple. One would be safety. The other would be accountability. But there's even a bigger one than that, and that is this. In the book of Deuteronomy and repeated throughout Scripture, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word would be established. And so by having two witnesses go to proclaim this message, it validated the message. So this doesn't look like some rogue preacher guy, because in that day there were many running around claiming to be the next prophet, the next Messiah, the next this or next that. And so in order to disprove that and validate the message of God, there were two men going together in each place. 
But they were uniquely empowered to do what God is given, or Jesus is giving them to do. This is really, in this moment, is a precursor to what you see happening in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Jesus had told them as he was ascending. He said, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to receive power. And after that, you're going to go and be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Well, then later, another chapter in Acts later, the Holy Spirit shows up and these guys do miraculous things and go on to do miraculous things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in this moment in the book of Mark is endowing them with power uniquely over disease, over death, and over demons. He's uniquely given them this power, but it's also a power to be able to go proclaim a message. Now, back in Matthew chapter 10, that same story, I want you to see this. He said, these 12 Jesus sent out, that's your term, apostle, and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into the city of the Samaritans. Oh, that seems weird, doesn't it? I thought Jesus was all about reach the world for Jesus. And now he's telling them, well, don't go talk to the Gentiles, which is us, by the way. Or don't go talk to the Samaritans who were kind of the half Jew, half Gentile. No, 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 don't go there. I want you to go, and where did he tell them to go? But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason for this is he's wanting the gospel to go to Israel specific because they were trained to look for the Messiah. God is fulfilling a promise to Israel, sending them the Christ child, who's now an adult, who is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. Remember, Jesus came unto his own, but his own received him not. And Jesus now is sending them to proclaim the gospel to the house of Israel first, to announce that the kingdom is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a literal, physical kingdom. How is that possible? Because the king is here. When Jesus is on the planet, he is the king. The king is here. So the kingdom of heaven is here, and it's here now. And they go preaching this message. Remember, John the Baptist was the precursor to that, and he was the one saying, hey, there's one coming who's, who I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoe. The kingdom is here. Repent. And that's the message that John the Baptist was, was preaching. It's like, well, what does this have to do with me? I'm not living in that era of time 2,000 years ago when the Messiah showed up. But here's the point. If you'll watch the consistency through Scripture, we have all been instructed to do the same. When Jesus ascended up on high and gave instruction to his followers, what did he tell us to do? To go, therefore, and teach or make disciples, which is to teach all nations the word of God. You're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the public profession of faith and someone openly identifying as being a Christ follower. But then what else? To teach them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, he said. Now listen, he gave us the clear instruction, just as he did with the disciples in this day, that the priority is teaching. It's the proclamation of the kingdom. And so they went and then they preached. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. Now, when they're preaching a message of repentance, what, what's being described? 
The message of repentance is real simple. It's a change of heart or mind that changes my course or direction. So you think about it this way. I was going this direction, whatever that is. And that direction would be contrary to God, most likely, because it's the way of the world. It's sin. It's, it can, I repent daily. I have to. You say, well, is that part of your Christian life? I believe it is, because every day I realize that conversation was not of God. That process, or that uh, thought process, was not of God. That statement was not of God. That action was not of God. That was a direction that I was going that is contrary to God. And so then I repent. Say, Lord, I'm so, I, I recognize, that was the stupidest thing I've ever said. I can't believe I said that. Why was I thinking that? Lord, I'm sorry, and I, I confess this to you. Well, that's repentance. You you come to this understanding that that's a I'm going a wrong direction. You confess, and repentance is changing direction now to go in the direction of the Lord. Well, repentance is all part of salvation. I remember the when I repented and came to salvation was the day that in my life I heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save me and pay my sin debt. And it led me to repentance. The goodness of God led me to repentance when I realized that God loved me so much that he would give his own son to pay my sin debt. And that I was a sinner and I needed a savior and I couldn't save myself. There wasn't anything I could do to pay God back. That's impossible. And so by confessing, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know you're the savior. I'm asking you to save me. I'm asking you to forgive me. Well, when that happens, there's a change that happened in me from being someone who completely disregarded God to now all of a sudden I recognize where I'm at and I turn by faith to the Lord in repentance and ask the Lord, please save me. And years ago in my life that happened. But what was the message? These guys have been hearing Jesus preach this over and over again, the message of truth and grace and mercy and forgiveness and the kingdom and repentance. And so these men were now instructed, you go out in the power of God and you preach this message over and over again. And here's the rhythm of Jesus' ministry. Jesus modeled it. The disciples will now follow and model the same. We come behind them and do the same. The priority is the teaching of the gospel. The reason I say this is because the next point is is very important, and that's Jesus teaching about touching and with compassion. Jesus taught first. Teaching is a priority. Because without a way of knowing the gospel, without someone knowing how to be saved, compassion is wonderful. Touching is wonderful. To feed people who are hungry, to clothe them when they're cold, and to give them nourishment, whatever the case may be, and all the aspects of compassion are absolutely wonderful, and Christ followers should engage that every day. But I do have to be mindful here. If I go into the world to make sure that no one's hungry, everyone has clothes, and everyone has shelter, but they don't have Jesus, well, now wait a minute. At the end of life, they die and go into an eternity without Christ having been filled, their, their tummies are full, and their closets are full, and everything looks okay. But spiritually, they're not okay. 
It's why teaching is always the priority. But Jesus taught them to touch with compassion in Mark 6, verse 7. He said, and he gave them then power over unclean spirits, which are the demons. We've already seen Jesus exercise his power over them. In Matthew chapter 10, says the same. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and kinds of disease. So in Mark chapter 6, what did they do? They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, I want to spend a couple of moments here because these apostles are unique guys. You're thinking, well, now wait a minute. Like, do we like cast out demons and what's the scoop with healing and how does all that work? And he's giving these guys power and oh, I've never done anything like that. And am I missing out on something? Is my Christian life like half void because I haven't done all these kinds of things? Well, we need to understand where we are in our Bible. What is God doing and where we fit in all this? Well, first, the apostles are a unique group. The apostleship were people that were eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry and his death, burial, and resurrection. We see the evidence of this clear in Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to tell you the story. But in Acts chapter 1, after Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus, what did he do? He, he went out and hung himself. So now our 12 has been reduced to 11. And Judas went into his own place. He's separate from God for, for eternity. He rejected Jesus. Well, the disciples all knew, the apostles knew there should be 12. And so what, they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so now they've now replaced Judas, and now they're back up to 12 again. The qualifications for apostleship were made very clear in the book of Acts, chapter 1. But the 12 disciples or apostles are not the only ones. There were others who were eyewitnesses. Obviously, Matthias was one. And there were a couple other guys they were considering. But there were many who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, the apostle Paul was called an apostle, but he says he was an apostle out of due time because he wasn't necessarily a part of the ministry or of observation of Jesus' ministry. Instead, he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And so he actually was an eyewitness to Jesus himself when he became a Christ follower and saw Jesus with his own two eyes resurrected. Paul became an apostle. The apostles were a unique group because they, this is a time when the Bible is not yet complete in its canon or in terms of its written form. So there's a validation that takes place when the word of God is being preached or taught that what would validate so that we would know this message is true and how, could we, how can we know this is from God? These men were very clearly identified as God men. Just like you might think of it an Old Testament prophet like an Elijah who was maybe trained through the school of the prophets but when he would perform a miracle there was no question that dude was a prophet. And he doesn't come speaking of himself He's always speaking, thus says the Lord. Well, an apostle was the same. They were empowered by Jesus uniquely for the ministry that they had. They don't come proclaiming their own power, their own strength, or their own capacities. They would, be, they would perform a miracle, but it was always unto the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this was done so that Jesus was always getting all the glory and the credit. 
These men were never receiving compensation for this, and so they were not getting rich off of other people's diseases. That didn't happen. And so what happens here, we can see the evidence of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul describes this. He said, truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. These miracles were being performed by the apostles to validate the word of God. We call them the signs of an apostle. And you can trust the message based on what you're seeing happen here, these signs and wonders. The Jews were trained to look for this. The Old Testament prophets had already told them to expect this. So when you see this happening, they would know, aha, so what I hear from John the Baptist that this Messiah is now coming. Here's these disciples or apostles that are speaking in the name of this Jesus and miracles that he was doing, they're now doing. It affirmed his Messiahship, that they would know this was true. And that was the role of the apostles, very unique. The reason for this is because in 1 Corinthians 1, says that Jews request a sign, but Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews and the Gentiles looked for different things. The Greeks were always pursuing after more information. But the Jews knew to look for a sign. They were trained to look for a sign. And so the signs they received through these miracles. So what did these apostles do? They would go teaching the gospel that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Christ. Priority number one. That people would turn from the direction they're going, turn to Jesus. Well, how can I know this message is legit? How can I know what you're saying to me is true? When they would perform a miracle and cast out a demon that's opposing God. When they would, cast, they would heal someone of a disease or sickness. It would validate that this message is the message from God. Well, now what do I do with all this? Doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that like we're supposed to pray and anoint people with oil? Because that's what they did. It says right here that they anointed people with oil that were sick and then they got better. Well, yes, but let's carefully consider what we're observing here. In James chapter 5, we see this exact phrase. Is any among you sick? Well, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, here's the question. So if you're sick, should you not be anointed with oil? Is that the right thing to do? Is it the wrong thing to do? Like if someone is sick and laying in ICU and you're kind of go blast in there and try to pour oil on them, well, you'll probably get tackled. That's not going to happen. So can there be healing without the oil? Is the oil important? Is there power in the oil? These are all fair questions. Well, the evidence in James would be that the oil is not the power source. The Lord is. Prayer is where the power hub is at and asking and coming to the Lord and asking. So what's the point of the oil? If you come from the Hebrew religion or Hebrew tradition, the Jews, clear all the way back in the Old Testament, clear back in Moses' day, things were anointed with oil, consecrated unto God, meaning set apart specific unto the Lord. Whether it was worship vessels, food that they ate, or a person like Aaron the priest, where oil was poured over, and it was clear that this is his role and this is who he is. The kings would be anointed. Samuel showed up with a horn of oil in order to put oil on David to anoint him to be the next king. So what's the purpose of the oil? Well, 
From a Jewish perspective, they would completely see this as an outward physical manifestation of somebody separate or set apart for God. Was this something that the Gentiles did too? Well, you can. But it wasn't part of the tradition or the understanding of the Gentiles to do this. Now, I want you to make careful observations in your Bible. James chapter 1, who is James talking to? James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. James is writing specific to the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jewish people that are scattered because of religious persecution. And so Jews very much understood the purpose of the oil and why you would anoint with oil and what did that even mean. And this is something that the apostles did. So this was, this was carried down and they understood this. For the Gentiles to do this, is this something that we would understand? No, that wasn't part of the Gentile worship. Is it something to be adopted in? Okay, but is it a necessity? No. The point of the, of the oil was it was an outward consecration manifestation here to say, this is of the Lord. The power is not in the oil. The power is of God. And I'm asking God to do this. And that was the whole purpose behind the oil. And so these apostles come along and they anoint with oil and miracles are taking place. Is it because of the anointing? No, it's because of God. The empowerment of God and the answer to prayer and they're asking not on their own name. It wasn't to make a name for themselves. It wasn't to gather up and have a big conference. It wasn't so they could make money. It was only done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that people would know Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one. And here's something that I find fascinating in this. Does God still, still heal today diseases? Well, absolutely. Does God still do miracles? For sure. In fact, I can tell stories of when God does that and has in my life. I've been present with someone who literally died and was dead for too long to come back and ever live a productive life. And they did. I was in the operating room, standing in Asia, with a friend of mine doing heart surgery. He was there as a medical missionary. The patient he was operating on did not respond when the heart should have restarted. They did everything they could medically do to restart that heart, and it would not. And my friend left the operating room, went into another side room, was weeping, because he came there as a medical missionary and using medicine to proclaim the gospel. And it seemed very counterproductive now that this patient dies. It doesn't seem that it's going to validate his message very well of medical ministry. And he began to pray. Eight, nine, ten minutes later, the attendants that were in the room kind of starting to put things away ran in, asking to rush back in there because this patient, their heart started again. With no medical help, no paddles on the heart, their heart started again. 
And after all that time, obviously the concern would be, is, well, they're not going to live a productive life. They've been down too long is the term. No. Medical miracle. God did something miraculous. And it's like at the time, it's like, what? I can't believe this just happened. But then I watched God use these things one thing after the other because I was in a place that this is not where the gospel is normally preached. The president of that hospital knew that a God-man was in that building. And that was a... All I know is that person was dead and that man over there prayed and the God of heaven heard and God did something and that was unbelievable. Well, later, and I was connected to all these. These are friends of mine now. President of that hospital, his sister who was ultimately my boss when I was at the university. She was the party representative for the state. Faith was not an option for a party member. Got cancer. Eventually was taken to Beijing, and I was asked if I would come to Beijing just to come see. I went. And I shared with her husband, who was my close friend, the gospel, because he wanted to understand. He's like, I hear you say things, but I want to understand what you're saying. And he said, I think my wife needs to know this too. She received the gospel. She got saved. Man, it was glorious. She still died of cancer. A miracle was wrought. No question of the miracle. And I remember going to their home for the visitation afterwards... And sitting there with her daughter, and her daughter began to explain to me how, you know, my mom died in faith that I don't fully understand. But she trusted in this Jesus, and she had this total peace and was no problem. She was ready to go be where he was. It's an incredible story. Just this last week, I was notified of another miracle that's taken place where someone went into the doctor in bad in bad shape. Come back, we're going we're gonna to make a plan. They come back to make the plan for treatment. I can't explain, none required. Everything's okay. All that we saw is not there anymore. It's a miracle. Today in our church, friends of mine that are here out from out of state, they've experienced miracles. Things the doctor said, your child will never do this. He's doing it. God performs miracles one at a time. Is it because of the oil? No, it wasn't the oil. No, God's still in the business of doing miracles with or without the oil. The apostles were doing that to consecrate that moment unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the rhythm of ministry was to teach, to touch to operate in total dependence, he sent them out and commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their belts. Don't just wear your sandals and don't take two tunics. What's the point? Because Jesus is teaching them total dependence on him. The rhythm of ministry is total dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember where this first hit me like a ton of bricks years ago. I was a teacher, preacher, ministering, and I learned the rhythm of how to do life Dwayne's way. You learn some Bible and you can teach it and kind of do that. It's no problem. But I remember when my mentor looked me in the eye one day and said, Dwayne, what are you trusting God for? 
And I stuttered and stammered around. I was trying to drum up something. And it changed my life in that moment. I realized, you know, I could do a lot of things in the name of ministry and not trust God for any of it. And what Jesus is doing here to these disciples, he's sending them on a short mission journey. They're going to come back, but they're taking nothing with them and they're going to learn what it means to be totally dependent upon the Lord. They're going to trust him for provision, for protection, for what they're going to eat, for what they're going to put on, for everything. They're going to trust Jesus one step at a time in this thing. And so I'm going to ask you a hard question that was posed to me that might stagger you this morning, and that is, what are you trusting God for? Because you start thinking, it's like, what? It's hard to come up with something sometimes. Because we get used to how we're going to do life, and we don't want to get outside of our box. Everything's got to be comfortable. We don't ever have to trust God that way. This is a contrast to later when Jesus sends these guys out and Jesus is going to go to heaven and sit upon the throne. The next time he sends them out, he tells them to take their stuff because, well, you're not going to come back and process with me again. This is it. You're going to go. And you're going to go minister. In Luke chapter 22, he told them this. He said to them, you know, when I sent you out without money bags, without knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. Then he said to them, but now, he who has a money bag, let him take it, likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and go buy one. Why? Because it's a one-way ticket. We're not coming back to here, guys, to process ministry again. No, I'm sending you out. And you're still going to be just as dependent on me as you were before and the last time. But this time you're going to go and not come back. Jesus teaches the rhythm to teach priorities, to touch with compassion, to be totally dependent on the Lord. What are you trusting him for? But the last is no less important, and that is to talk, to talk with Jesus. Watch what happens in Mark 7, verse 30. It skips way forward. There's a story in the middle we'll talk about next week. The apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Now notice, they gathered to him. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. And here's the beautiful part of this. They come back to where Jesus was. They report, man, this is what I taught. This is what happened. And Jesus says, now, come be with me and let's be still. And he ministers to them alone. Now the crowd's going to press in and they're going to kick right back into ministry gear soon. But I want you to see what happens here. There's a rhythm in Jesus' life. If you'll read through the Gospels, Jesus always does the same thing. He will teach, he will touch people, and he will go talk to the Father. Guys, it's easy it is so easy, and I've been there so many times, I get so mad at myself when I do this, to teach, to touch, get a little sketchy on dependence. Why? Because you don't talk to the Father. 
And what happens is when there's, if there's lack of communion with the Lord, you find yourself just doing things in, in the fleshly capacities of what you know, and you, you'll settle into what you're comfortable with, because anything outside of that, now I'm back to being totally dependent again, because I don't have the resources for that. I don't know how to do that. I've never been there before, and we don't like that so much, so we don't want to go there. And so the Jesus rhythm is real simple. Teach, touch with compassion. It individualizes ministry to an individual person, their name, their face, their life, their reality. It's not just the groups and the masses. It's this total dependence upon the Lord where Jesus says, you know, without me, you can do nothing. But with Rumi, I have not seen and ear hath not heard what God can do through a group of people who just believe Him. Total dependence. And the last thing is so important. Go talk to Jesus. I don't know what your next step would look like today in your spiritual journey. My prayer for you is that you, by faith, would take it. If I ask you to bow your head... If you would like to, to close your eyes and just contemplate this morning the next spiritual step in your journey. If you're going to consider as a disciple, if yourself as a disciple of Jesus, following the Jesus rhythm, is there an instruction that Jesus is giving today that requires a step? Is it the teach? Is there someone in your life today that needs to hear the good news of Jesus? You say, well, I don't, I don't know. I really don't have anybody. Well, then pray. That's why you're on the planet, is to teach people the good news of Jesus. And so ask God for a new open door, new relationships. The aspect of touch is God put someone in your pathway right now that desperately needs the hand of God compassion if you don't know Lord would you direct my steps to that person that needs to know you through compassion this total dependence what are you trusting God for and the time to just talk do the days and weeks go by where the conversation with Jesus is limited non-existent what drowned it out? Podcasts? The news? Music? Even if it's all good things, has it drowned out your conversations with Jesus? Is there a step you need to take today? Is that step to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? My prayer is that today would be the day in your life you would call upon Him by faith and just ask Him to save you. Confess with your mouth that, Lord, I know you're the Savior. I believe you're the, the Son of God. I believe you paid my sin debt. I believe you rose again, and I'm asking you to save me. And maybe the next step in your journey is to make that faith public and be baptized. Maybe your step is to make a commitment to a local church and, and say, you know, I want to serve here. I want this to be my family, and I want to make a commitment to a church and be a part of this group. Is it to discipleship? You need to be trained for that? You want to be, a, be discipled, have someone show you what it means to walk with Jesus? What's your step? Everybody has a step.
It's what the faith journey looks like. 